0: Hello, this is Gail and Catherine, and we're stopping by to invite you to a special online event on February fifteenth from eleven thirty a.m. to one p.m. Central Time. Women over seventies Aging Reimagined Circle is featuring Rebecca Sive, the well-known podcaster,
1: author, and activist. Rebecca will guide us in an interactive discussion using her new book as a jumping-off point. Make her story your story your guided journal to justice every day for every woman. This is a free event. To register, just send an email to info at womenover70.com or visit our website for details. We hope to see you there. Hello, I'm Gail. And hi, I'm Catherine. And welcome to Women Over 70 Aging Reimagined, our weekly podcast. Our signature is sharing stories of vital women between the ages of 70 to 100 plus who shatter the myth that we become irrelevant as we age. Be sure to visit womenover70.com and make a donation, join Aging Reimagined Circle, and visit the books for women's selection. Invite us to conduct a workshop or speak to your organization. We share relevant clips from podcast guests and offer numerous programs to enrich women's lives.
0: And today we're delighted to bring Lynn O'Neill to Women Over 70, Aging Reimagined. Welcome, Lynn.
2: Well, thank you. I'm I'm delighted to be here. (laughs)
0: Wonderful. Lynn O'Neill is 78 and she lives in Dallas, Texas. Lynn and I met while we were instructors for a leading entrepreneurial education program. Born Linda Jones to a mother who suffered from schizophrenia, Lynn's early childhood was violent. At 10, her brother was born and Lynn cared for him. In the 1950s, Lynn's father literally saved their lives by gaining full custody and moving them where he lived. Lynn chose to stay with her father. Her brother, however, was more complicated and the custody arrangement took longer. Perhaps it was her difficult upbringing that developed within her a strong determination to make her way in life on her own and not just make ends meet, but excel in every position she's worked in. The entrepreneur bug hit her hard and soon she was championing small businesses in award-winning ways. Today, Lynn looks forward to life in an RV and plans to continue making her mark in the business arena. So Lynn, we are delighted to have you on the show. And let's spend a few minutes understanding how it is that your early life
2: and about with cancer made you who you are. Well, I I believe that when you survive something um, that life-threatening or that serious, that there is a pride that gets associated with that, that, doggone it, I made it through this. There's probably nothing else that can stop me. And that's exactly what happened to me. I also remember this experience, uh, if anyone on this, uh, listening to this podcast actually ever remembers Est, I went and I had, I'm scared to death of heights, and I had to do a Trollian Traverse, I had to repel, and and there was one other, oh, a zip line, and I made it through all three, but I'll tell you, I honestly thought when I got off that, that if I can do this, there is nothing that can stop me, so I still feel (laughs) that today
0: and and uh so cancer and your early life that all really impacted you i know and you told me you wrote a chapter recently titled unwanted for a new anthology did Mm -hmm. you relate that to what what we just discussed about your early childhood
2: well it, it does a lot it also talks about the power of one person which i think is such an important concept Mm-hmm. So the chapter is, uh, my dad was overseas when I was born. My mother had to go back and lived with her mother and they had never had a good relationship. I was a breech birth and for years when I still lived with her, so up until I was about uh, almost 11, um, I actually, um, she, she would say that I tried to kill her by being born that way.
3: Mm. Uh,
2: but the other things that I remember, I still... You know how if you go in a hotel room and they make the bed so tight, kind of military fashion, and if I if I get my legs under there and I can't get my legs on top of the covers, I can become really frantic. And I'm guessing this is probably what people experience with a panic attack. But it's from from my mother before she would lock me in this dark closet for hours. She would make me lie down on the floor of the closet and put a pillow over my face and actively work to smother me if mm-hmm. I lived through that then she would just lock the door and leave me in there for several hours mm-hmm. so all of that's related and and I do think it is related um to the fact that that if if I had to put one word to what that created within me it's fearlessness so mm-hmm. where I am. Tell, tell
0: us about your grandmother
2: well she is she's the the power of one person. So she had a fourth grade education, never drove a car, never had, um, gosh, never had a phone until I bought her one when she was 67 and um, sold eggs and butter, didn't have running water. uh, So obviously no plumbing, no electricity. um, And she still was the wisest woman I've ever known in my life. And how that happened? If you're not a believer in reincarnation, this might convince you. Because it literally, there was no way for her to know the kind of wisdom that she imparted. But she is my heroine. And so the chapter, the last part of the chapter, really talks about how she saved me. And she did. Uh, She also was the first example of a stepmother that I ever got to see up close and personal. My dad's mom died when he was eight. Right in the middle of the depression and there were four little boys Mm -hmm. so his his dad did what anybody would do during that time he married the local spinster and that was my grandmother but one of the things i saw and i'll be real quick with this but one of the things i saw at a family reunion it was the first time all four of the boys were there plus the the three living children uh, that my grandmother and my grandfather had together and when she welcomed them into this little bitty old farmhouse, there's no difference in how she treated the ones she birthed and the ones that she had inherited. And that was such a great lesson because I ended up marrying a guy with guess what? Four children. <laughs> at her going into teenage years. That was a real lesson. Um, but, but because of her, I think I knew a lot more about what to do. So incredible teacher, incredible human uh, I miss her every day that I live.
0: Yeah, you were so fortunate that she was in your life for sure. You, you. Um, it, so is this is this uh, chapter going to be in a book that will be published or no?
2: It's actually out on Amazon. Um, I'm not wild about the title, but I will share it. It's called Kissed by God. It's stories of resilience. And um, there were nine of us in a writers group, and each of us has a short chapter. So,
0: yeah. Yeah. Well, what I'm really interested in is all of these careers that you've had. You said you had 25 careers.
2: And I still have two on the drawing board.
0: Oh, really? So tell us about some of those. What can you highlight?
2: Well, I will tell you that I started working when I was 13. And as you mentioned, I'm 78. So I've been working 65 years, which if people weren't working, that's when they would figure they would retire. But retirement has absolutely no appeal to me. So I, I actually started off working behind a soda fountain, which are really hard to find these days. Um, but I did that and I sold 35 millimeter cameras and vinyl records all through high school Great uh, today. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And then when I went to college, I was trained to be a probation officer and that's what I wanted to do. And I um, actually left Texas where I was born and didn't know one person in California had never been to California, In fact, I'm not sure I'd been out of the state more than once. And, um, and I literally, when I came over the San Bernardino mountains, LA was on fire. It was the Watts riots.
3: Mm.
2: Um, so you can imagine what a great uh need there was in probation. So I had to live there six months in civil service job in that state. so I had to live there six months and work at something else. I counted credit cards for Gulf oil. That was really boring for me. but <laughs> but but I did that for six months, and then they hired me into probation. and uh it was one of the greatest learning experiences. I think if I did it now with all that I have under my belt in terms of experience, I could probably have done it much better, but I only did it for a little over a year. And by the way, if you've ever seen the movie Fresh Out of Compton, I was right down the street from Compton. I was at a facility called Las Padrinas in Downey, California.
3: Mm-hmm. And,
2: um, and Fresh Out of Compton is a really good and very accurate movie. And um, so I did that, but an eight-year-old killed the probation officer guy standing next to me with a uh, toothbrush he had sharpened into a knife. And the guy just, it was dead before he hit the ground. And this kid just sauntered off to the chairs of his, uh, they had kind of an internal gang. Anyway, I decided I was not mature enough for that. And I left it and had to decide what I was gonna do. And that's when I became a flight attendant, which by the way, was one of the best jobs I have ever had in my life.
0: Why do you say that?
2: Well, because it's pleasant and it's it's helping people, so I probably help more people as a flight attendant than I did as a probation officer. Um, and church and um, furry co-workers are really a challenge, I'll tell you. So, so I, um, it was pleasant. You worked four days off. It's the only job I have ever had in all of these. That when I went home, I could just leave it. There was not one darn thing I do. My plane was gone, my passengers were gone, my crew was gone. Mm-hmm. So it was the only time in my life I ever remember feeling true freedom. When I and it's still even in today's climate, which is pretty rugged, that is still the best job out there. I got to tell you, it's a great job. <laughs> were
1: well, you I, so, Lynn? I always wanted to be a flight attendant when I was uh, in high school, uh, but I got to. I was became too tall. So, um, but I'm I'm wondering, were you flying domestic, international?
2: Well, I was actually flying domestic. By the way, the, the height limits are no longer in there, and they do hire women who are over seventy. So, if you ever want to go live, <laughs> that time, no, you think uh, I'm, I don't know? 1983. I heard a woman who was sixty-seven. Uh-huh. To be- oh, wow. really? Yeah, uh-huh. I did much well, to the horror of some of the younger management but you know what she was great so there's that <laughs> um, but um i i will tell you that that i i flew domestically when i graduated from college my undergrad i actually interviewed with american and they sent me an invitation to go to training and i don't know what goofy reason i had but i never went to training for them and then when i got to california decided i wasn't going to be a probation officer anymore one of the things I did is start interviewing with the airlines. And as you might imagine, American was not keen on seeing me again. Mm-hmm. Um, but I went to Continental, which is where the pilot I was in love with, where he flew. So I really wanted to, to be there. And they hired me, but I couldn't pass their vision test. So I went to Western Airlines, which, by the way, was the original airline in the U.S., uh, United actually split off from it. And, um, but I went to Western who I laughingly say did not matter. It did not matter to them that I could not see. And they <laughs> heard me right away. So I said, <laughs> they must have been really hurting for flight attendants, I guess. <laughs> but, uh, but it was a wonderful, gosh, what it was about a 10,000 person airline. And we were all domestic with the exception of Mexico. So we did that and we did a lot of charters, um, but you had, I had international passes capabilities so I could go anywhere in the world, which was Mm -hmm.
0: wonderful. Mm -hmm. Do you take advantage of it? You betcha. (laughs) (laughs) So after that, what
2: happened? What did you do? Well, I started moving up through, I was actually with Western for 10 years. Uh, When I married my, now late husband, but also we were divorced. So I never know whether to say my ex or my late, (laughs) both apply. So, but but he was a great guy and he, in in many respects, but he he actually was the trainer for the Los Angeles Lakers. Mm -hmm. And so at one point he said to me, this makes me laugh. This is perfect for this program. He said to me, you should get a ground job. And believe it or not, if he said it today, I'd say, well, how about you get a ground job? But but at that point, I said, okay. So I I went down and interviewed. I'd never supervised anybody. I never thought of supervising anyone. I went down and interviewed. And over and above the fact that the first interview question that I ever got uh, was from a vice president of Western Airlines named Roger Gardaman. And it's okay with me if you leave his name in. And his first question to me was, and Linda, what birth control do you take? Are you Mm -hmm. And yeah. I, this is in 1978, roughly, um, and uh, actually 79 by then. And um, and I, if I'd said no, I would have gone right in the no pile. So I told him, uh, but it was a, a much different workplace time. But I got that supervisory job and I ended up supervising, I who had never thought of doing this, 123 flight attendants, which is very much in that, in that respect, very much like uh, supervising in a trucking company, because they all get on their airplanes and go away. And you only have four, you have four 15 minute opportunities to be their supervisor each month. So mm. it's it's pretty interesting. But I did that. And then I ran the Los Angeles base, which was the, the largest base, had about 1000 flight attendants, And and then they gave me 60 million in catering contracts to manage, uh, which I had no idea. I don't cook. So, you know, Mm -hmm. imagine me managing food and beverages, good Lord. But, um, but I did that. And then, uh, and then they added in, this was the best part. They added in a 50 person commissary. Los Angeles was their largest location. This was a commissary with 50 men who had never worked with a woman, much less reported to one. And uh, so there was great learning and I still get Christmas cards from a couple of those guys. Uh, We, we became a really good team, uh, which was wonderful. But the reason I left Western after, and I did a year in HR for that, by the way, doing affirmative action uh, training and assessment centers. But um, I left because the vice president with him for whom I worked, who was a nice man named Harry White, um, who was very devout religiously and thought that uh, women had a certain place. So he used to pat my arm and he would say things like, so they had four bases. The other three were managed by men. None of those had catering contracts or commissary responsibilities. They were all named directors. I was a manager and he used to pat my arm and he'd say, you know, O'Neill, You do such good work. If you were a man, we'd make you a director, maybe even a vice president, giving all of your responsibilities. But you're a woman, literally. Mm -hmm. So in 1975, I decided I was done with that. And I went to work for TRW, which at that time was number 57 on the Fortune 100. So, Mm
0: -hmm. wow. So So when did you become Entrepreneurial?
2: Oh, probably the day I was born, I think. think So (laughs) Yes, I do. (laughs) I actually remember, this is such a dumb story, but um, I actually remember being about four years old. I remember the house that my my mom and dad were still together and I made mud cigars and went around my neighborhood and sold them for a nickel each and all the neighbors bought one. (laughs) Somebody said, what are mud cigars? I said, they're exactly that. They're mud you probably don't want to put them in your mouth because you do not know where I got the mud. Yeah. But, but it was, it was, it, so I think I've always had that. The other thing is I'm a really terrible employee. Um, and it just, you know, well, well, when you, when you're, when your basic inclination is to leave and you've proven yourself on numerous occasions, even by a young age, it's really hard to step back. And a flight attendant, even though I was an employee, and I was—I think I was a really good flight attendant. But even though I was an employee status, once you're at thirty-five thousand feet in the air, let me tell you something: it's all on you. Mm-hmm. So you better lead, um, or you're going to go down. So there's that. So great training. <laughs> yeah, I think that I've the reason I started my consulting business, though, which was my first formal. Uh, consulting adventure. That was in 1980. And I did it because I worked for this guy who was horrible.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: And, and I loved the job. If you've ever gotten an Experian credit report, I was the director of human resources for the company that did that and also had a product called business credit that went up against Dun & Bradstreet, by the way, not successfully, but went up against them. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and I was in HR and I had a staff of about 30 Um, and, but I was working for this guy and he was just inept would be the nicest thing you could say about him. Um, and so I said, I am done with this. I just, and I had gone through cancer at that point, which really does change your perspective. Uh, When you come that close to dying, I don't care if you are 12 or 112. The fact of the matter is when you come that close to it, it does prompt you to rethink what your legacy is going to be, and it also prompts you to rethink, I believe, if you're doing anything good in the world, mm-hmm. and if so what is that, so it really sparked, and I've, I've heard this from a lot of people who've had similar experiences, that it really does spark a level of introspection, that if you haven't gone through something, it's really hard to deal with empathetically, mm-hmm. uh, it's one of those that just cuts to your soul, you know.
0: Right, right. Is that how you became interested in Conscious Capitalism?
2: No, I got interested in that. Well, kind of. I I probably more as a consultant. I have, uh, you can't see this, but I have a Gaping Void Art signed piece on my wall that I look at when I look toward my computer. Uh And it's Gaping Void Art is Hugh McLeod, He works a lot with Seth Godin, not a particularly talented artist, but he's got all these little creatures on this and what it says under it is culture is the number one metric
3: mm-hmm.
2: and, and culture is the most absent part of the good managerial um, equation in our workplace today. So conscious capitalism was written by the guy who started uh, Whole Foods out of Austin, Texas, and he, um, he really made a case for sustainability and building a strong culture in so many respects but then he sold up to Jeff Bezos at Amazon so I said this guy actually and, and I don't have anything against Bezos I love Amazon I use them all the time um, but I don't think uh, because I did work for them in, and Gail I think I relayed that to you when we talked a couple of days ago but um, that he could use some managerial help by the way but that so I'm not as fond I'm from a, a theory perspective, I'm very fond of conscious capitalism. From an application, I think it's one more thing. And one of the companies for which I have virtually no respect these days is Facebook.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: But if you remember when Cheryl, whatever her last name is, I've erased it from my mind, who wrote the book Lean In. Yes. Everybody, everybody was doing lean in groups. And all. they said, do you want to join? I said, nope. And they said, why not? And I said, I read that book in 1962. And she hasn't changed a darn thing and not much has happened. So no, I, I don't. So conscious capitalism to me is like that as a theoretical kind of nirvana that it describes, it's wonderful. But if you are not walking the walk, it just, and if, you, if, you're about, if your actions don't back up what you say or your values, uh, and to my mind, you know, that is fraud. Quite up. Right?
0: You're talking about leadership having to walk the talk.
2: Absolutely. Well, everybody in a company, but people mimic the mimic the leaders.
0: Exactly. Uh, Start at the top.
2: Yeah. Well, the bottleneck's always at the top of the bottle. Yep. Yeah.
0: Still, you talk about the, you know, when we were talking, we talked about the triple whammy, uh, the three P's, right? People, productivity and profitability as being, you know, essential to a successful business. Yep. And so, how does that fit into conscious capitalism? Can it?
2: Well, it actually was one of their creations. They were the early contributor to that formula. Um, what what they have not mastered is how to get the people who are parts of that. And I'm sure there are many exceptions to this, but in terms of the group as a whole, um, how you get people to internalize that and then put it to work. And when I started my consulting business. I said anybody can write a strategic plan everybody's got a dream and you can ferret that out but what people don't know is how to implement and that's why my consulting business has always been strategy implementation mm-hmm. yeah. so it doesn't matter how good your idea is and that's what conscious capitalism is at this point now i will tell you that i am a devout capitalist devout mm-hmm. and, and and i've had people go through either workshops or classes I've done. And, and I'm betting both of you have had this as well. And, and what people say, Oh, money is not that important to me. And I said, well, then give it to me. Cause if you can show me how much good poor people do, as opposed to people with money, I'll tell you, I don't think you can prove that, but you're welcome to try.
0: <laughs> I want to, I want to switch gears for a minute. You, you've talked to me at great length about relevance and mm-hmm. resilience. And so you know, what do they mean to you now? I understand that you experienced a lot of that and needed it in your younger years. What what does it mean to you now?
2: Well, if I had to give it another term, I would just call it lifelong growth. Um, so for me, the relevance piece is, as an example, there's still a lot of people who just fight uh, change. And one example of that is technology. Although if they go to buy a fridge today, I hate to break their bubble, but you're going to get a fridge that will talk to you, you know, and that your picture is on it. I mean, it, it, we're surrounded by, it, but there are a lot of people still dragging their heels
3: mm-hmm.
2: on, on that aspect of it. And I think that is, that is just really tough. So I believe that always being willing to learn and change Um, I I laughed. I said in 2020, I pivoted so much. I was dizzy, but it just, um, it was one of the best learning experiences, but there still are a lot of people out there saying, oh, when we return to normal, first of all, I have no idea what normal is these days. And secondly, we're not going there. And, and I, you know, as, as kindly as I can force myself to be about this, I really want them to get that. So some aspects obviously will come back some, some will, and that's great. Uh, but, but everybody going to the office, All those days are gone.
3: Mm-hmm. And,
2: and I think that it's really important that, and this is both the resilience and the relevance parts uh, is you got to look and say, how do I do my job better differently? In
0: terms of your own self, how do you think about relevance and resilience?
2: Well, you know, I'm taking remedial Python coding. (laughs) I I have never failed a class in my life and I failed my first Python class. That was very hard on my ego. Um, but I am taking a second one and I, I I'm a repetitive learner. So it may just be that I have to take it a couple of times. I'm certainly right brain predominant. So doing things like coding is about the farthest thing for me that walks. So, um, it is tough, but I think that that is a part of and most definitely of, of relevance. And you know, I trademark relevant you, It's going to be relevant University when we start it in February. And, uh, and that's going to be fun, but it is teaching people and particularly, so just as an aside, you know, that I teach the state required classes for assisted living managers, that's for the state of Texas. And I actually worked and that was one of my 25 careers when I was in California. And, um, and one of the things that I see happening all the time is real resistance to technology there,
3: mm-hmm. whether
2: it's they're still keeping their books on column pads. You know, that kind of stuff. Um, and so I think that relevance is about embracing something that you really don't know, but truly embracing it. And resilience is remember that old Chinese proffer that said, fall down six times, get up seven. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that to me, that's that's resilience. Yes. It is, and it it really is knowing that you can get up. Um, so I've had a couple of times in my life where I was just dead flat broke awful times. And the formula that I fell into with that was, I would open, this is after computerization and mobile banking, and I would open up my computer and say, okay, do I have enough money to get food uh, for the puppies and the kitty? Yep. Okay. Check that off. Can I have at least one good meal? Yep. Check that off. Do I have enough to put gas in my car? Well, 10 bucks, check that off. And my whole thing was, if I, if I have enough to get through today, I'll worry about tomorrow, tomorrow. And it's not that I'm not planful, but there are so many things that are outside of your control that, that sometimes you sort of have to trust in the good efforts of the universe, you know, whatever somebody's Mm -hmm. belief system is. Um, so, so those are my two things that if, if there are, you know, in the top of leadership characteristics or entrepreneurial characteristics, manager in Fortune 100 characteristics, one of the things that has shown up on every list since Buddha was a baby is, is def, um, decisiveness. That I believe now that relevance and resilience are going to come and walk right alongside with decisiveness. Mm-hmm.
3: I mm-hmm.
2: think that our world has changed that much and that that's, that's where we're moving. And and as hard as this COVID situation has been, I will tell you, I think it has been such a great teacher. Um, And I'll give you an example. I've always networked a lot. And I've got a huge network here in Dallas, and and 27,000 people on LinkedIn. and, And that's all really cool but I have found three organizations that I didn't renew my membership in, which I always do in December. And I didn't, I wrote them and told them why. And what it's going is I am going to do very targeted networking Mm -hmm. and I am no longer going to have to shake hands and pass out cards. I'm done. Mm
3: -hmm. And it's,
2: and I do believe that it is, if you've never done it or you're starting out your career, then I do, I think it's important. I absolutely do. Where I am right now, I know exactly what I want to know and do in this next decade. And it does not involve me adding to that network, except in very targeted fashion. So that's that's where I'm coming from at this point in my life.
0: <laughs> so do you ever think about your own aging?
2: Yeah, when I look in the mirror, um, because... Um, you know, and, and I actually bought a book and gave it as a gift for Christmas to a couple of people. It's called Wrinkles. It's the greatest book. It's photographs of people's wrinkly faces. And it's such a beautiful book. Of uh, And I don't know if it was Lauren Bacall. It was some way back when movie actress who said, uh, I earned every one of these wrinkles. And that's how I feel about this. I Now, I'm not brave enough to let my hair go Gray or white, whatever it is, I've forgotten, and um, I don't have quite enough courage to do that just yet. But I can feel it in the wings, so it's coming. Uh, and and I very proudly, and a lot of people always say, "Why do you emphasize?" Because when I start a class, I say, "I'm 78. You know, here's my background. Let me just tell you a little bit about what I've done." That kind of thing. And and I've had so many people, particularly women, say to me, "Why do you put your age out there?" And I said, "Because I am really proud of it,
3: mm-hmm. and I
2: am. I am." If you ask me about my greatest accomplishment, it may well be living to be 78. I mean, (laughs) no, I'm serious about that. I like that, actually. Well, I I tell you, there's there's a lot to be, a lot of people give up long before that. And the reason I started off saying about the assisted living um, is the fact that I think I believe with all my heart, by the way, that boredom kills more people than stress. And Mm -hmm. the people, if you look at APS calls, the adult protective services call, I will tell you that 75% of those go to people who are living in their home on their own, seniors. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. As opposed to being a part of a community and having some real socialization going on with that. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's, uh, I, I think that what keeps as young, vibrant, resilient, whatever the right word is for every person. I think what does that is this learning and being willing to still be active and do things. Now, I will tell you, I had a hip replacement and I'm not doing a lot of hiking these days, which makes me pretty sad because I haven't done the Mont Blanc Circle and I really want to do that. So we'll see. But, um, but the, but the fact of the matter is um you just got to keep doing things that are interesting to you, and that and that are growthful. So that's yeah. my that's my pitch.
0: We we could keep talking forever, Catherine. I, you haven't had a chance to get a word in. I have
1: not. Um, I just was um, thinking about where we where you started, Lynn, with fearlessness, and how it seems to me that fits in with the relevance and resilience and decisiveness. That there needs to be an element of fearlessness to keep moving and keep going?
2: Well, I think so. And th- th- for me, fearlessness has a real aspect of courage in it. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I'm not always courageous. I owe that I were, but I am a lot of the time. And I will tell you that I tried to sell a speech present a conference presentation a couple of years ago that was, uh, that was, that was called uh, in praise of whistleblowers and and i and, and i couldn't sell it nobody would buy and maybe i didn't sell it appropriately i've, I've got it it's not dead uh, so it'll it'll show up again but it's about the fact that the reason we get whistleblowers are people who believe they have a better way to do something and they can't get any traction so in the end the frustration overtakes them and they blow the whistle mm-hmm. and if you go back and look at the history that's where it is so it goes back to gail's point about culture in, in that, but I think that, that the whole, the courage to blow the whistle now as a consultant, we're sort of doing our version of whistleblowing at all times, because we're saying, how is that gonna get you to your goals? That's whistleblowing basically. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think there's a courage element to fearlessness as well. And one of the things, it took me till I was 55 to have any courage at least. Well, that's actually, it's not, I know it's not true factually but that's how it felt Mm -hmm. and and at 55 I was supposed to go on a vacation to Europe with a whole bunch of friends everybody bailed on me and and they we were going to go to Vienna Prague and Budapest and Mm -hmm. and I had this all mapped out and not one person could still go and they said well let's reschedule I said nope I'm going Mm -hmm. and they said by yourself and I said you betcha and they said well how will you do that I said I like my company and Mm -hmm. I do and that is, that is part of the courage and all to just go and do it. And by the way, I went on that vacation. That's the best vacation I ever did. It was wonderful. It was wonderful. Now, I can't outrun if somebody tried to mug me at these days, but I carry one of those little, little mace thing, and I carry a little uh, thing that makes it the loudest noise that you could ever get. And so guaranteed to scare off muggers. And, um, and so And so I travel a lot by myself still.
0: That's and, wonderful. Yeah, that's wonderful. Now we could keep this going forever, and I wish we that's could. New.
3: Oh, <laughs>
0: unfortunately, our time is is up. So,
1: thank you, Lynn, and listeners. Please subscribe to our podcast and leave a review wherever you listen. Also, visit our website, womenover70.com, and easily access all of our episodes. Become a member in the Women Over Seventy Aging Reimagined Circle. And enjoy programming beyond the podcast. See you next Wednesday on Women Over 70, Aging Reimagined.